Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. In any stable democracy, having a free and well-functioning press is essential. Historically, East African countries have been reluctant to offer their journalists the same kind of press freedoms enjoyed everywhere else. That includes a right to publish without government censorship and safeguards against retaliation. Today, we're going to focus specifically on the East African country of Kenya. There's been positive developments there regarding its media industry. The World Press Freedom Index has noted that press freedoms are improving there and are among the highest in East Africa. And research by Reuters claims that trust in the news grew by 6% last year. That's right after an election. Sadly, though, there is still much work to be done when it comes to making newsrooms a safe place for Kenyan women. According to a survey from Women in News in early 2022, about 90% of women working in Kenyan media say that they're likely to be sexually harassed while on assignment. And for both women and gender non-conforming respondents, more than half said they expected to face sexual harassment in the workplace. I'm Rena Ninen, and on today's episode of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, we're going to look at what actually works when it comes to ending sexual harassment. Later on the show, I'll speak with Alexandra Kalev, a sociology professor from Tel Aviv University. She, along with her colleagues at Harvard, have conducted groundbreaking research looking into what actually prevents sexual harassment in the workplace. So instead of accusing someone and pointing fingers, you want to empower people. But first, we have a profile of Kenyan news leader Judy Kaberia. Judy has been an important voice in bringing the problem of sexual harassment to light. She's also been successful at holding organizations accountable for discrimination. Here's reporter Sharon Kiburi. I was really looking forward to talking to Judy. She's a trailblazing woman for journalists like me. But there was noise in our office, so we stepped out. We were in a beautiful green garden, which was a little noisy at times. Judy Kaberia is currently the senior project manager in the East Africa chapter of the Friedrich Norman Foundation for Freedom. Up to this point, she spent most of her career in journalism. I was inspired to become a journalist because I grew up in a community where there was female genital mutilation, underage marriages, and basically a lot of things that were discriminating the woman. Nairobi is a long way from where Judy grew up, a village in Meru County. Meru is a rural part of Kenya where opportunities for women are quite few. I was made to believe I belong to the kitchen. There's no respect for the women. I was so strong-spirited because also my mom was such an inspiration to me. She'll, she'll tell me you're so intelligent, like you, you look like you'll really go far. So I think this is what kept on breathing some freshness into my life. And I knew I'm not a Mokenye, I'm not a useless woman in this uh, village. Judy took that advice and never looked back. She studied hard for her undergraduate degree and she got her big break. She landed a job as a reporter at Capital FM, one of Kenya's most influential news radio stations. That began her career as a journalist. 
But even though she had left Meru behind, she soon began to encounter gender stereotypes and sexual harassment. I was a very young reporter. I was like 24, 24 years old. And it was a member of parliament. This guy kept on saying, come I give you an interview, come I give you an interview. And I never wanted the interview. But the media house, he had so much influence that they called the media house, they even insist Judy needs to do this interview. So the day I decided to go do that interview, this guy at some hotel in Gara, when this guy actually came, he was totally drunk and disorderly. And he asked me to hold a room. I said, where we are is good enough for us to do the story, the interview. And then he said, stop being a mjinga. Stop being a fool. Why are you pretending you don't know? Why are you pretending to be a, a, an innocent girl? And you know what I mean? The harassment then became physical. And so in the process, a uh, fight ensued. I was trying to escape and uh, down the staircase, I put my hand and the railway, you know the rail, sorry, the rail for the staircase. staircase. Yeah. I had some bangles, young person, and I put it like this and it was pulling me. So that's how it got hurt by the bangles and the, the rail. And the worst part of it is I didn't know what to do. So I was crying there uh, and I called, of course, the former, my former media house owner. Sorry, it's late now. And he came, of course. It became a big scene, but at the end of the day, the agreement was just give us some money. And from there, I was threatened and I was told to keep quiet. At 24, I just kept quiet. And that's why I said, I do not want another young person to suffer like I suffered. She wanted to make sure that other survivors could stand up to their harassers. They could hold them accountable. I want them to be empowered at that age of 24 that when this happens to you, there's someone you can report, that you have your rights. So I don't want anyone to ever go through that experience that I had because after that I left the country for almost nine months. And then I was thinking how I could kill this guy. For a long time I was feeling like I would kill him. So I didn't want any other person. And that's why I think I said if I ever got a platform, I will do that. She wanted to make lives better for all Kenyan women journalists. So she got a master's degree in new media and governance at Leicester University in the UK. She then joined journalist for human rights, JHR. There, she fought for the rights of journalists, something very close to her heart. Due to her outstanding work at JHR, she was eventually recruited as the executive director of Association of Media Women in Kenya, also known as AMWIC. I was very happy to move to a leadership position where I could be able to influence policy, where I could be able to make solid avenues that will forever settle some of these things that we are discussing. Because I realized we are discussing a lot sexual harassment. Uh, we meet, talk, have roundtables and talk. But at Amwick, I knew I had the power, I had the position, and I was at a place where I could be able to come up with a policy. This was to be her biggest push yet a new sexual harassment policy that would be binding for all media organizations in Kenya. The first step was coming up with a document. I'd never made a policy before in my life. So even just coming up with that document and sexual harassment policy, for me was also a defining moment. As she was drafting this new sexual harassment policy, she did it in a smart way. She got the buy-in from the key media leaders. We work with the civil society organizations, we worked also with the Kenya Media Sector Working Group, worked with editors, worked with every stakeholder to ensure that we got the buy-in. And that is why when we asked them to sign as a commitment to adopt the anti-sexual harassment policy, this worked very well. 
AMWIC led the efforts to draft a sexual harassment policy that every major Kenyan media organization supported. The policy included definitions of sexual harassment as well as recommendations on how to handle and avoid such instances. But getting the policy passed did not change things overnight. Judy then shifted her focus to training newsrooms on how to implement the new sexual harassment policy. We'll train them about first what is sexual harassment, you know? Who is a victim? Who is a perpetrator? How can you avoid becoming a perpetrator? How can you avoid uh, being a victim? And when you become a victim, what should you do? We also ask media houses to establish a committee of neutral people where someone in the media house can go and report when they experience sexual harassment. Beyond getting the media organizations to sign the policy, she is also proud of something else, getting victims to share their experiences and show others how common sexual harassment is. When we started inviting people to talk about their experiences with sexual harassment, majority of them were very scared to talk about it. So many people never wanted to say that it happened to them. But for me, I really liked when people stand up and say, I was sexually harassed and this is my story. This is what happened to me. It was very interesting also to see men come out. Men also came out to say they were also sexually harassed and they gave their own stories. And if you don't open up and you don't talk about a situation, then it shows like the situation is not there. So for me, that was really a defining moment that we created a platform that people could start opening up and giving their own personal stories. And through their personal stories, we're able to know what to put also in the anti-sexual harassment policy. They also made a documentary. Together with UNESCO, we worked on a documentary. It was so emotional. Like sometimes I would break down just listening to the stories of the victims. The women who had gone through sexual harassment, some had lost their jobs because they said no. Others had their contracts cancelled just because they said no. So even getting to the bottom of the story, hearing the voices of the victim also inspired me in a very big way to push for that sexual harassment policy. Judy describes one story where they were able to hold the perpetrator accountable. A story that I'll never forget in my life is about a young journalist. She was at a Christian radio station, shockingly, and she was getting sexually harassed by her boss, who is someone's husband. And she knew how to preserve evidence, so she had kept the text messages. And when we approached the guy, initially refused, but then we showed him. And so we went to the employer and said, this is what this guy has been doing. So it's either you deal with it or we go public. So they decided to do away with the guy. For Judy, this was a partial success. The man was suspended, but he was allowed to remain anonymous and he never had to face the criminal justice system. Of course, we were not very happy because uh, it's not just about suspending someone, but I think there should be justice and accountability for perpetrators of sexual harassment. Judy is proud of the work she has achieved and knows there is more to be done to root out sexual harassment in the workplace. She is encouraged, though, by the cultural changes she's seeing taking place. Overall, she thinks the policy overhaul is helping victims of sexual harassment in media, which still mostly impacts women. Sexual harassment had been accepted, women had been accepted as flower girls to decorate, to be seen around, beauty queens. But now, at least things have changed. You see, like now there's an anti-sexual harassment policy. Yeah. Now people know their rights and people know the value of the women. For the hidden economics of remarkable women, 
I'm Sharon Jibouri. Coming up, a leading researcher shares her findings on sexual harassment trading in the workplace and tells us what actually works and what we often get wrong. All that after the break. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Rena Nainen. So as we just heard, it can take a lot to bring about changes to places with deeply entrenched biases. It's not impossible, though, as Judy Caberia is showing, when a woman takes a prominent leadership position, it provides an opening for others to follow. But what are other ways to break through and promote gender parity in the workplace? And what are we getting wrong? To help me answer these questions, I'm excited to speak with Alexandra Kalev. She's the chair of the sociology department at Tel Aviv University in Israel. She, along with Frank Dobbin of Harvard University, have done some groundbreaking research in the area of workplace inclusivity. They recently wrote a book together called Getting to Diversity. Kalev and Dobin spent a considerable amount of time looking into how to decrease sexual harassment in the workplace. And according to Kalev, most of the well-intentioned programs they looked at actually backfired. The typical anti-harassment training is mandatory. You can call it a forbidden behavior training if you want. It puts men and women in in a room and starts to get into the nitty-gritty of what kind of behaviors are forbidden, are defined as harassment by the law, and what will be the punishment, the consequences if someone actually behaves this way. If you think about it, you basically put people in the room and tell them, you don't know how to behave. You have been behaving uh, badly and we need to fix you. That's the message. It sends the message that men have to be forced to pay attention to the issue. And the fact that it focuses on this forbidden behavior creates significant resistance. And what does resistance mean in this case? Studies show that it makes men more likely to blame the victim, to think that women uh, that report harassment are making it up or overreacting. Furthermore, studies have shown men that before training rate highly on inclined to harass scale. After training, they become more likely to harass, not less likely. So overall, this accusatory forbidden behavior training creates defensiveness and doesn't mobilize men, the audience, to acknowledge the problem and become part of the solution. You also critique how companies usually deal with incidents of sexual harassment. What's problematic about something called a grievance procedure when they file a complaint? Well, almost every company has a grievance procedure, which is basically bringing the legal system inside the company allowing victims to complain, and also creating presumably fair process in which neither the complainant nor the accused can later sue for mistreatment. However, the ground is not leveled. 
These grievance procedures are rigged. They're not leveled. Both sides are not even. The accused and the company have the same interest of getting rid of the uh, complaint. The company because of the legal risk and the bad rep. And the accused, of course, they don't want to be accused of sexual harassment. They don't want to bear the consequences, etc. The company is supposed to investigate the matter and to solve the problem, but the company is on the side of the accused. Usually the, the complainant doesn't have the resources to pursue such a complaint. Furthermore, HR is the function that is supposed to mediate between the accuser and the accused. And HR is also on the side of the company. HR staff often try to talk employees out of filing a complaint so they can um, prevent that mark. We know of cases where the HR person will say, yes, I know that guy's a jerk and I know how much you suffer, but don't expect me to say anything in these discussions because, you know, I work here too. I want to keep my job. And that's true. They are between the rock and the hard place. That's another reason why these grievance procedures are rigged. Most people that experience harassment don't file a complaint. Kalib says the research about those who file complaints is also pretty bleak. Studies, for example, that compare women that were harassed and filed a complaint to women that were harassed and didn't file a complaint, those that didn't file a complaint do much better. They score higher on job satisfaction. I mean, that's not that high, but higher than those that file a complaint. And they didn't have to leave their jobs and they didn't end their careers. So both well-being, physical and mental well-being, and job satisfaction are higher for those that don't file a complaint, even though they experienced harassment. What does that say to you, that it's almost like remaining silent, you'll be rewarded? If you don't remain silent, you will be punished. Retaliation is a huge problem. There is like more than 50% of the complaints to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the U.S. are about retaliation. As a worker, as an employee, I find myself isolated when I file a harassment grievance because many of my friends, my colleagues, my co-workers will hesitate to side with me, will be afraid to side with me. Women that file an harassment grievance find themselves isolated, persecuted, ridiculed, and really suffer significant well-being and career consequences. It is well known that filing a grievance procedure is a career ender. And not surprisingly, we find that when companies put in place harassment grievance procedure, they end up with significant declines in the share of white and non-white women in their management ranks. The atmosphere, the environment becomes toxic when you file a grievance procedure. So if grievance procedures don't work and some of these trainings don't work that are specifically sexual harassment focused that put men on the defense, what does work? So instead of accusing someone and point fingers, you want to empower people to solve the problem of harassment. And we know that bystander training has been more effective in reducing harassment and increasing interventions in cases of harassment and stopping them. Even months after training, trainees significantly more likely to report that they intervened in real-life situations. For those of you who don't know, Bystander training basically means that you get trained to intervene when you see someone getting discriminated against. And that goes for everyone, men, women, non-binary. You're taught to not be a bystander. 
You're shown how you can intervene effectively so the harassment ends. That's that intervention that assumes that trainees are allies working to solve the problem of harassment rather than, again, potential perps. So everybody's job, all the trainees' jobs, managers' job is to recognize and nip misbehavior in the bud, if you will. It's like if you see something, do something or say something approach. In bystander training, you end up with trainees that say, okay, we understand the problem now. We think we have tools to reduce harassment in our company. And again, they report that they, even months after training, they report that they have done that. Kalev says this bystander approach is particularly effective in training managers to stop harassment. The difference in this training is that they give managers tools to spot, to prevent to treat cases of harassment. So they don't treat managers as the culprits, but as the allies. So you mobilize them. And we know from uh, psychological research that internalization and motivation comes with this kind of feeling that you have control. And when you feel like you don't have control, you resist and you externalize the problem. So what needs to be done? to get rid of sexual harassment. So we we talked about the bystander training that empowers managers to spot behavior and to nip it in the bud, if you will. Instead of grievance procedures, there are some better options that create more flexible, more open, less rigged, easier process. But there is, for example, the option of having an ombuds office. What is that? What's an ombuds office? Ombuds office is an office an organization that sits outside the organizational chain of commands, unlike HR and, you know, legal department. The Ombuds Office is independent and can work independently to resolve complaints. They don't necessarily intervene in the workplace, or they don't have the power to discipline the accused, but they are there to hear the employee, to discuss the options with the employee, and to mediate resources for the employee that might be most useful for them. Oftentimes, they help the employee solve the problem by mediating a request that the behavior will just be stopped. And sometimes that's enough. I know that in 80% of the cases, the accuser, that's all they want. Just have it stopped. I don't want the person to be punished. I don't want a big deal. I just want it to stop and I want to keep working. You know, an ombudsperson can make that happen. Kalev shares another big advantage to having an ombudsperson. It's a great way to get anonymous complaints. The ombuds office can also collect complaints, helping resolve the specific complaints. They also collect information. And this kind of information can help a company understand where there are problems. The company can understand, okay, we have repeated complaints in this department or in these times of the year, in these periods where there's more stress or less stress, etc., And it can help the company think more systematically about how to reduce harassment. So what if you're a smaller company? You know, if you're a larger corporation, you've got attorneys, you've got resources, you've got mechanisms in place. But what would you advise for small businesses, for startups that are dealing with sexual harassment? So it's not only about solving problems when they are created, but also managing and creating an environment where these problems are less likely to occur. And that's something that startups can do. 
maybe asked about small companies because they might not have the resources, even for hiring an alternative dispute resolution staff, but they can manage a respectful, inclusive, diverse environment. The more diversity you have, the more inclusive you are. You have less discrimination and less harassment. So ultimately, what is it, the research that you have found on trying to decrease sexual harassment, what would you like our listeners to know? First, think of everyone as allies trying to solve the problem. Think of the problem, not of a problem of an individual, but of a systematic problem of an organization that needs to study its own culture and processes to prevent the opportunities for harassment. Diversity practices that finger point, that individualize the problem of diversity or the problem of discrimination and the lack of equal opportunity, these kinds of methods don't work. On the other hand, what does work are programs and practices that are put in place in order to decode the unevenness of career systems. Both diversity and harassment need to be thought of as dynamic processes. For example, with COVID, people thought, okay, we'll have less harassment now with people working online, but actually there is so much harassment online. So when we think about how to reduce harassment and how to increase diversity, we need to always be with our finger on the pulse to understand what is the environment that creates these, these problems and think about solutions that fit the environment. Next week on the podcast, a journalist in Uganda uncovering a disturbing phenomenon with yellow fever vaccinations that led her to directly challenge the country's Ministry of Health. I had to make sure that I get the minister on the side. And that is what I did after her presentation. I went to her, I greeted her, introduced myself, and showed her the card that I had used to enter another country. Uh, the minister, I think, returned and called for crisis meeting. The story of how one woman's campaign changed a major healthcare policy and how that's aiding Uganda in its efforts to end yellow fever. That's next week. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy and is made possible through funding in part from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Rena Ninen. Laura Rosbrow-Tellum is our senior producer. Rob Sachs, our managing director. Production assistance provided by Avon Munoz and Nicholas Petri-Mitchell. And Sharon Kiburi contributed reporting for this episode. And if you like our show, we hope you'll share the love. If you're on social media, do post about it. And if not, tell a friend how much you appreciate the show. Every little bit helps us grow our audience. Thanks again. We'll be back in your feed next week.